This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Dr. Brett Steenbarger. He is a clinical psychologist and a professional trading coach who has worked with the likes of Paul Tudor Jones and Tudor Investments and a number of other uh, firms that are both storied and legendary. You know, this is one of those conversations where I know the person virtually. I've been reading him for many, many years. We've swapped emails uh, over the years, uh, but it was the first time we actually met and had a conversation. And I found it really quite fascinating. It the idea of performance coaching turns out to be somewhat different than you than you might have imagined. It's certainly different than is depicted in shows like Billions and and all the drama, all the rest of that sort of stuff just isn't realistic. It, it, as he describes in the conversation, it's a lot of basic block and tackling and a lot of work on on fundamentals, enhancing the positive, minimizing the negative, uh, probably doesn't make for a, a fascinating uh, television show, but the proof is in the pudding and uh, the firms that hire him show an actual improvement, not only in the process and the satisfaction level of traders, but ultimately in their P&L. And, and that, that seems to be uh, the bottom line. It, 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 what he does works uh, for firms that have humans who have discretion over deploying capital. So if you are an investor, a trader, uh, or, or someone who's just interested in human psychology, I think you will find this to be uh, an interesting conversation. So with no further ado, uh, my interview with Dr. Brett Steenbarger. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the show, we have Dr. Brett Steenbarger. He is a clinical psychologist and a trading coach, and he has worked with such storied firms as King's Tree Trading and Tudor Investments. Dr. Brett Steenbarger, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me, Barry. So you, you have a really interesting background. You graduate with a, a BA in psychology from Duke in 76. You get your PhD from the University of Kansas in 1982. And then you begin what looks like a pretty typical academic career in, in clinical psychology. New York City, Cortland, Cornell, Syracuse, and then all of a sudden, you end up at a trading shop. How did how did that shift come about? Yeah, it actually, Barry, looks more like a radical shift than it was in reality. I began trading myself in the late 1970s while mm -hmm. I was in graduate school. Ah. And so it was a parallel interest to the psychology, and it helped keep me afloat as a poor, starving graduate student. And I maintained that interest throughout my training and throughout my early career as a psychologist. So what was the event that led you to start coaching traders? Well, up to that point, I had been doing counseling with college students at Cornell and with medical students and residents mm -hmm. at SUNY Upstate in Syracuse. So my main area of focus was working with very bright, very motivated students, professionals under who are under pressure and helping them perform to their maximum. 
when I started interacting with traders, I noticed similar dynamics to the medical students and residents that I worked with. Not not a big leap. That it was sort of parallel. Not, psychologically, in terms of working with them as a psychologist, it was not a leap at all. The same exact techniques that were helpful, let's say, to a surgical resident who's working 18-hour days and working under pressure, not different than working with a portfolio manager, let's say, at a macro hedge fund. So let's um, let's talk about some of the errors that traders make that are fixable, coachable. I don't even know what what's the right phrase to do that. What what are the typical problems that you see amongst traders? Well, there are quite a few, and some of them are trading problems, and some of them are psychological problems. One of the things I emphasize with the traders and the portfolio managers I work with is keeping score. Mm -hmm. Keeping score of what they do well, keeping score of what they do that needs improvement, so that they are always learning from their experience, always recognizing the mistakes they can correct. One of the greatest big picture mistakes that traders can make is the failure to adapt to changing markets. Mm -hmm. They hope that they have an edge, a probabilistic edge in the markets. They hope that that edge will last in perpetuity. And in fact, markets change. And uh, just like any business, what worked at one time can become obsolete at another. And failing to innovate is one of the greatest problems. Failing I to innovate. Yes. Just, just describe how individual traders innovate. They innovate by tracking patterns in markets, tracking what moves markets, and developing new and different ways of monitoring that and taking advantage of that. So, for instance, an example would be as computers, as uh, algorithmic trading systems became more dominant in the marketplace, uh, we found more traders, both short-term traders and portfolio managers, employing some quantitative techniques to help them understand some of the forces that were moving markets. That's an evolution. That's an adaptation. So let's talk about when you shifted, um, is it fair to call it full-time as a trader coach? Was it 2004? King Street Trading, who for people may not be familiar with them, at one point in time, they were 25% of all the futures trading at the Chicago Merck. They recruit you um, yes. to be the head of trader development. Is that That's is that right. Affair? That's right. So uh, I had written my first book, The Psychology of Trading, and one of their traders had discovered the book and convinced the owner of the firm to bring me in to work with the traders. Mm -hmm. That went very well, and they hired me on a full-time basis. I left the ivory tower and went full-time to working at a crazy trading firm in Chicago with people I loved. So I, I would imagine a lot of people who are listening to this might be familiar with the idea of a trading coach from the Showtime show Billions. Have you seen it? Does it does it ring true or is it just a Hollywood dramatization of that sort of relationship? I, I can tell you that there is a lot less drama in my work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't think um, the nuts and bolts of my work would make it into TV drama. A lot of the improvements that traders make are nuances. It's the blocking. Incremental? And, yeah, incremental. It's the blocking and tackling, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Learning to do things better, identifying mistakes made, uh, where to and how to best execute a trade, how to wait 
evidence in deciding upon an idea to invest in. Those are the kind of nuances that end up making a big difference in performance, but are not particularly dramatic to work on. You hinted something that I ha- that raises another question in my mind. When you evaluate how well you're doing, is it just a function of the trader's P&L, or are you looking at process more than outcome? Great question, and, and you have to look at, at both. You know, at one level, when a a firm hires me, uh, we have to look at, do the traders make use of the resource? That's Mm -hmm. one level. Are are they satisfied with it? Do they feel they've benefited from it? So satisfaction is one criterion. The second criterion is a process one. Are they actually doing something different as a result of the meetings? And then the third criterion would be the profitability does doing something different translate into better overall performance? I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dr. Brett Steenbarger. He is a clinical psychologist and professional trading coach. Let's talk a little bit about the process of coaching traders and investors. Where does that process begin? The process begins with self-observation, and this is true of any psychological change. We have to become aware of our patterns before we can make changes in those patterns. So typically, I will observe uh, a trader and what they're doing. I will will give them exercises to help them with self-observation, and we'll begin to observe patterns in what they do. Some successful patterns, some patterns that get them into trouble. What what's what do these exercises look like? That sounds uh, interesting. Well, the most basic exercise that people associate with coaching of traders would be keeping a journal. So people mm-hmm. day in, day out will track the decisions they make and how they made them, why they made them, and the success of those decisions. They may track certain things in their personal life as far as their mood, their energy level, and so forth. And we start to look at the patterns that appear uh, in the journal entries. So what are some of the, the bad habits you see that traders engage in? Some of the bad habits that traders engage in is are an inability to turn it off, so to speak. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, so they take the problems home with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really don't get a chance or give themselves a chance to renew themselves. Mm-hmm. And they justify that by saying they're so devoted to their trading and so devoted to markets when, in fact, they're in the process of burning themselves out. Right. Sometimes you have to take one step back to go two steps forward. Well, uh, take a step back, but also a lateral step. What the psychological research tells us is that people perform best when they have a healthy amount of positive emotional experience in their lives. Mm -hmm. And that experience could come from relationships. It could come from deeply meaningful activities. It could come from physical exercise. And so when people become overly immersed in trading, they often shut off some of these other positive avenues. And that's part of what helps burn them out. What what about work satisfaction? What happens when a person's work satisfaction falls? Do they find themselves 
in a downward spiral that becomes challenging to break? They can, and, and that kind of downward spiral can become a slump, and many traders are familiar with that phenomenon. Uh, when uh, people draw down in mm -hmm. their trading, as happens to all of us, it's important to have other areas of positive focus. Mm -hmm. So for instance, one of the things I work with the traders on, if they work within a team, is how they can build their team processes and how they can be more successful, more productive as a team. We work on refining their trading processes and learning from the drawdowns so that they always feel as though they're moving themselves forward even when their accounts aren't necessarily moving forward. So let me ask you the opposite question. I always ran into trouble as a trader, not when I was having trouble, but when I was on a hot streak, when yes. I felt yes. whatever I touched turned to gold, and that invariably ended badly. What do you do when you have somebody who's just on fire and you want to rein them in without you know, raining on their parade? It's very easy for confidence to become overconfidence. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an, an anecdote with several traders that I worked with a few years ago. We took a look at their profitability as a function of their level of risk taking. Okay, that makes sense. And so sense. when they were taking relatively little risk, they were consistently profitable. Mm -hmm. Their hit rate on trades was very good. When they were taking the most risk, which was when they were most confident, they were actually losing money because their confidence had become overconfidence. So what we did, we created computerized alerts that told people when their risk taking was getting into the red zone mm -hmm. as a way of monitoring possible overconfidence. What we were really saying to them is, when you're taking this amount of risk, historically, you don't make money. So the baseball analogy is the difference between just getting wood on the ball and getting on base versus swinging for the fences and striking out. That's right. That's is that a right. Fair, uh, fair way to look at it. And uh, and my goal as a coach is to make people aware of those patterns, help them become mindful of those patterns, not tell them how to trade. So how often are you sitting down with traders? Is this a, a weekly thing, a daily, a monthly? What what is the usual? time frame for something like it this? It varies tremendously. When I've worked full-time uh, at uh, trading firms, then it was not unusual for us to touch base to meet several times a week. There are traders even now that I meet with who will send me their journal entries on a daily basis as a way of getting quick feedback. But others times it's a monthly process. In some cases, it's as wanted as needed. So it really depends on the urgency that the trader feels in terms of need for change. So there's a related question to that, the feeling the need for change, which is what makes somebody coachable, if that's the right word, and, and the corollary, uh, are, are some traders just uncoachable? The coachable, the coachability factor partly depends on the capacity for self-observation. People who would be really uncoachable probably never seek out a coach to begin with. But clearly, if someone is more defensive mm -hmm. than open-minded to the things that they're doing wrong, that's going to make it a difficult situation for coaching. So I one of the questions I had teed up 
which you kind of answered, but I have to go back to it, is how much do you need to know about trading to be an effective trading coach? And maybe a better way, now that I know you've been trading for 30 plus years, maybe the better way to ask that question is, what's the ratio between psychology and trading when you're coaching people? It's a mixed ratio because, as I mentioned before, sometimes trading problems create psychological frustrations and sometimes psychological issues can interfere with good trading decisions. And a big part of what I do is try to tease apart the causality. Is this a trading problem that's having psychological effects or is it a psychological issue that might be affecting their entire life that's influencing their trading? It's very helpful as a coach to have familiarity with trading, with making trading decisions. I have long contended that my greatest credential as a coach is not the three letters after my name. My greatest credential as a coach is that I have made every mistake that all of the traders I work with have made. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Dr. Brett Steenbarger. He is a clinical psychologist and a trading coach uh, who graduated from the University of Kansas with a PhD in 1982. Let's jump right into some of the things you do coaching traders. How does a firm go about deciding, we want to work with a trading coach? We think there's some gains to be had from that. Often the initial request or demand will come from the traders or the portfolio managers themselves. Maybe they have known someone who has worked with me. Maybe they've read my trader feed blog or they've read one of my books. And so they will bring it to the attention of managers. Management. Then I'll typically go into a firm and do a talk for the traders and talk with them about trading, talk with them about psychology, talk about working on performance, and they make a decision from there. So someone decides they want to work with you, and at that point, is it mandated? Is it voluntary? Do people? How do people start filling up your calendar? How does that work? Totally voluntary. Uh, this is something that is available to traders, but not required of them. Mm -hmm. What I typically find is that in the beginning, there are the early adopters, uh -huh. and then there are a few tire kickers along the way. And as the results come out and it goes well, then more people hear about it and get interested. And so the interest can grow over time. So we talked earlier about uh, hot and cold streaks, but the question I have for you is, hey, sometimes you flip a coin and you get 10 tails in a row. Uh, how challenging it is it to tell the difference between someone whose process has some issues and someone who, hey, sometimes, you know, the dice just don't, don't go your way for a while and eventually that'll turn around on its own? It's a very important distinction. And obviously, Barry, it's one of the reasons why risk management is one of the most important psychological tools for traders, because there are going to be random streaks mm -hmm. of losing trades, and you have to be able to survive that risk of ruin. What we typically look at are two things when someone has a series of losers. The first is, have markets themselves changed? Is there something different about the market that we need to adapt to? The second is, has your process changed? Are you doing something differently than when you were winning? And those two questions usually 
will help us figure out whether we need to take adaptive action or whether it's just bad luck. So you you mentioned winning and losing, and I'm going to go off script a second and ask you a question that I've always been fascinated by, which is you look around Wall Street and the traders that are there, forget the algorithms, but the actual human traders uh, historically have come from a um, collegiate athletics background. That seems to be rife all of Wall Street. Any thoughts on that? I think that's common. I, I, I think it's far from always the case, especially lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, people with athletic backgrounds or backgrounds in performance fields in general mm-hmm. tend to be competitive, mm-hmm. tend to be interested in winning and losing. And so it's a natural transition in that respect to trading. Uh, That being said, I believe that trading is a much more analytical game now than it was, let's say, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so we see people who have some of the analytical background going into financial markets uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit different than when it used to be mostly the jocks. Makes sense. Let, let's talk a little bit about ego. How important is it to have a healthy ego and, and when can that run amok? You have to have some ego to believe that you can outperform all of these other motivated, talented participants in the marketplace. And you have to have an ego to be resilient to the inevitable periods of losing. It's when the ego becomes dominant, Mm -hmm. when people feel the need to make the big calls, that in a sense, it's about them being right rather than them following what markets are doing, that uh, traders could run into some real problems. That's funny. You, You say that a few weeks ago in a column I referenced a Ned Davis book whose cover I, I loved, the title I loved, which was Being Right or Making Money. Right. And it's just, well, you can choose. You Is it the ego or is it the P&L that matters? Yes. So the way I sometimes have uh, put it is that if you're engaged in a dance with the market, mm-hmm. you have to let the market lead. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. So what is more, to, to follow up on the athletic theme, what's more important, offense or defense? Well, clearly both are important. Um, If you don't have good defense, you simply don't stay in the game. Mm -hmm. And so what we typically find is beginning traders, often their greatest problem is over trading, becoming Mm -hmm. too eager and trading way too much and not managing their risk well. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dr. Brett Steenbarger. He is a clinical psychologist and trading coach who has worked with some legendary firms and traders out there. Let's talk about the modern era of trading. Uh, We've seen a number of traders replaced with effectively software. Uh, High-frequency trading has made it much more challenging. How much more difficult is it to be a trader today than when I began 25 years ago or when you began over 30 years ago? It is more difficult and more complex in a number of ways. And I'll mention two. The first is the respect that you are talking about. There are an increasing number of market participants, particularly algorithmic, 
that are making decisions upon high frequency data, what's being bought, what's being sold, each transaction, is it occurring nearer to a bid price, nearer to an offer price? And it's quickly aggregating all this information to tell them are buyers dominant, sellers dominant, and making rapid decisions. And so a lot of the market movement is not occurring because of quote unquote fundamental reasons. Traders of old would look at the world, they would look at a company and its earnings and predicate their decisions on that basis. An increasing amount of market movement is coming from other directions. Hmm. So that's the first way in which trading is challenging in the modern era. The second way, as you and I know, the world is a much more global place. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer the case that the major influences on markets occur only during New York hours. Right. So much is happening in Asia. So much is happening in Europe. Headlines from over there, events from over there, um, uh, global economic conditions from over there really affect how assets in the US behave. And so that's created a complexity that traders have had to adapt to. Hmm. That That's interesting. Let, let's talk about something that hasn't changed and that's human emotions. How can you teach people to keep their emotions in check? What I work with traders on is not simply controlling their emotions, which is helpful, but using emotions as information, becoming more mindful, more aware of one's emotional reactions, because many times there can be information in what we process emotionally. The old, the old joke about George Soros's back. There you go. Acting up when he was in a position and as soon as he got out of a bad position, the backache went away. There's information in that backache. And, and that's true for many people. They experience emotions and that is information about what's happening in markets and what's happening to your portfolio. There's one portfolio manager I work with, for instance, who uses his emotional reactions to gauge the likely emotional reactions of other participants. And so- if, say, say, Expand on that. So how does, how does one's own emotional reactions help you gauge other people's emotional reactions? If a market sells off and he starts to feel some panicky emotions, the first thing he thinks about is, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe other participants in the market are feeling this kind of panic. And what does that mean? And how has that market behaved when we've gotten into panic times? So he's aware of his emotions, but he's not being reactive relative to those emotions. Huh, that, that, that's quite fascinating. Here's another example. Sometimes when in my own trading, Mm -hmm. I'll have a series of winning trades, the way, sort of the way you described when you're on fire. Right. And I'll have the thought, I've got this figured out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you laugh because right. you know what sure. happens. Okay. Well, I become aware of that overconfident thought and I realize that that's a warning signal. So the mindfulness, the awareness of your emotional reaction can help you trade better. It, it, it's funny, when I started on a trading desk, the head trader, who is a former Marine jungle combat instructor, so not a guy to mess around with, occasionally would someone would have their ego get a little unchecked, and, and his response is, hey, 
You don't want to piss off the trading gods, and it was it was <laughs> right. a good way to say, all right, take take it, yes. take it down a notch a little bit. I read a nice uh, quote recently that said, "For proper perspective, every person should have a dog that adores them mm-hmm. and a cat that ignores them." <laughs> <laughs> that, that puts confidence and humility in the right perspective. A- a- absolutely. So that raises a really interesting question: How do you prevent people? or repair it when it happens from learning the wrong lesson from a positive experience or theoretically from a negative experience. Yeah. One of the things we emphasize in in working with with traders is the idea of this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. You know, trees don't grow to the sky and losses don't continue forever. And so we try to approach markets with fresh eyes, fresh thoughts from day to day, week to week. Markets have no memory, is that the thinking or? Well, the thinking is that a risk reward, the opportunity set typically changes over the course of time. And we want to recalibrate ourselves with respect to that altered risk reward. So for instance, we're investing in a stock and the stock moves our way. Well, it's not necessarily the same value that it was when we first put on the position. Is the risk reward compelling here and now? If this were January 1 and I had no position in this name, would I be taking a long position right here? That re- Those kind of questions recalibrate us mm-hmm. so that we don't allow the past, either the gains of the past or the losses of the past, to unduly color our current judgment. What about superstitions? I recall a number of, of I want to break out the myths from the superstitions. Uh, we, we keep referencing sports, but uh, certain people would not change their socks or wear the same hat, or you still encounter that sort of stuff, or have we moved past that? No, every so often, you, you definitely encounter that where uh, people feel like certain things are lucky and certain things are unlucky. Uh, but I think it's still a common practice as it was years ago. If you come up behind a trader who's made money and you pat them on the back and say, you're doing great, they will look at you as if you're trying to jinx them. Right. And, and Get away from me. Get away from me. Right, absolutely. And, absolutely. and, and I think that touches on some superstitions. Uh, how do you force people to be rational and evidence-based? Do, do you ever bump up against a situation where the data is overwhelming, but the trader just doesn't want to pay any mind to it? We all have blind spots, uh, myself included. And you can't force anyone to make a, a change, but what you can do is process the information as thoroughly as possible and encourage people to look at the information Uh, with fresh eyes from different perspectives. So it's not uncommon, for instance, in a conversation with a trader that they'll mention to me, they're long the dollar. And so I'll mention positioning and sentiment data that suggest that lots of money managers are long the dollar. Crowded trade. Yeah, it's a crowded trade. Do you still like it? What, what, What makes you think that it's going to continue? Now, 
I'm playing devil's advocate as a way of getting people to look at new information and make sure that they're making decisions for the right reasons. I always love the argument of inversion. Make the case for me for the other side of the trade. Yes. Because it's a two-sided trade. What is the other person thinking? That's right. And what might they know that you're unaware of or or what is... What is coloring their views that you might not have considered? It's a great point. I think it's very helpful to do what if scenario planning mm -hmm. and what if news comes out this way? What if the stock moves against us in that way? What would, how would you respond? What would that mean to you? What would tell you your idea is wrong? Criteria A, B, C, D and mapping that out in advance so that if those things should unfold, you're prepared psychologically to take proper action. We, we've always discussed what is the line in the sand. You have to have, anytime I've had a conversation with somebody, and this tends to be true with the gold bugs and the Fed haters, and there's a whole ideology behind the trade where you say, what would make you wrong? And they say, nothing. I know this is a person whose career in trading is soon to come to an end. That's right. If, that's if right. nothing can make you wrong, then you're not basing this would, on Would you on really want to entrust your capital with that person? Right, for sure. And the question that pops up every now and then, we've been talking about process, but something that's a little related is, and you hinted at this earlier, is a routine. You mentioned the trading diary or a trading log. What sort of routines are healthy for traders or, or investors for that matter? One of the important routines that successful traders engage in is, are routines of preparation. When markets are open, they need to be prepared for the different possibilities that may unfold. We've been speaking with Dr. Brett Steenbarger discussing all things coaching and psychology regarding traders. If you enjoy the conversation, be sure and check out the podcast extras where we continue uh, chatting about all such things related to trading. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Brett, thank you so much for doing this. I have been reading you for a long time, and you and I have been swapping emails over the years, but this is really the first time we've ever met. That's right. So th thank you for doing this. I, I find this stuff endlessly fascinating. And there, I was taking notes, which I normally don't do, uh, because so many of the things you said touched on... Uh, just just jog memories from my own personal experience when I, I started on a trading desk, and I just have to go through some of them. Um, you said one of the portfolio managers you work with um, monitors his own reaction to the market in order to s anticipate other people's That's reactions. Right. One of the things I started to take note of, and you know sometimes the patterns are evident after... They beat you over the head a hundred times. I noticed if when I was on the sell side, if I would bring up a stock that was wildly out of favor and for whatever reasons I thought was really attractive and the general reaction of anybody I showed the name to was, oh, that's just, oh, oh, what a piece of junk. Why would I want it to? That is now a giant flag. And when you, you see that, right? like back in the days when Apple was 15 with 13 mm -hmm. cash, yeah. when that newfangled iPod came out, oh, they're going out of business. They're toast. Why would I ever want to own that? I wish I was more sensitive to what a great 
contrarian indicator that that is. You are so right, Barry. And once in a while, I'll write uh, blog posts or, or tweet something, and it may have a bullish or a bearish tinge to it. And immediately, the haters come out. Right. <laughs> and the more defensive the reaction, the more I develop confidence right, in right. that view. Uh, because people don't get defensive if they are secure with their view. Right. It's when they're nervous and it's starting to go against them and, and they become the wishful thinking pops up. That's right. That's There's right. no doubt about that. The By the way, I kept coming back to the um, athletes on trading desks. I have a pet theory. I'd love to. You, you sure. Can, I, I, I'm going to get on your couch and you could, you could psychoanalyze some of... Uh, uh, my own foibles, but the pet theory with that has been, you know, if you're a college athlete and you're playing uh, Division One or Division Two or even Division Three, pick a sport: baseball, football, um, uh, basketball. It almost doesn't matter. The skill level is high enough that, other than whoever won this year and whoever was in the pits last year, pretty much any team on any given Saturday can beat any other team. Um, it's only mm -hmm. the real powerhouses that go 14 and one or right. whatever that are, that are almost unbeatable. And even them, uh, uh, someone eventually comes along and beats them. Uh, what I can't help but notice that very often it's a lucky bounce, uh, a, a surprise call that went the wrong way, the officiating, where the outcome is somewhat random. And despite having to work your butt off all season, all week, you lose on the weekend, and then Monday you got to get up and start all over again, right. fresh, and put the loss out of your mind and, and look forward. That seems to be pretty parallel to to trading and and sports have that similarity. Although I certainly could just be making something up after the fact. Well, and there are definitely random and lucky influences uh, in any of these endeavors. So for instance, with trading, one trader may hit their best ideas relatively early in the year during January. Another trader will go through a drawdown during the first weeks of the year. The first trader now has banked some profits, right. has some cushion, feels more confident in taking risk later on. The second one is afraid of digging too deep a hole because right. they don't want to be fired, so they restrain their risk taking. So that random period of January performance ends up potentially shaping a year's worth of performance. I had a conversation with a friend who runs a hedge fund who had three or four pretty mediocre years, flat years, I want to say July or August last year, he's up high double digits, almost triple digit returns. Wow. And I said to him, why are you still here? Why don't you close up shop? You know, and... and right. Which, by the way, I don't know if that would have been good advice or bad advice. His portfolio looks very different than mine. But you're up 90-something percent. Ring the bell, call it a year, <laughs> get paid, and, and right, and and take the next four. Yeah. How much more do you think you're you're gonna have to yes. to gain? And his thoughts were: Listen, I've had these positions on for three years; they're finally paying off. Sure. I'm not. I I, I have to see this to its end, and I I was kind of surprised by that. What? So so what would you say to somebody who's like, Nope, I uh, I died on it last year. I'm living on it this year, and I'm I'm gonna run it out. 
Well, I would applaud the staying power, that's for sure. But the question I would ask that trader is, okay, you're up 90%. How much of that 90% do you want to put at risk right here, right now to make how much more? Mm -hmm. What is the risk reward right here, right now? And how much do you want to make sure you go home with at the end of the year? Mm -hmm. So I would encourage them to think of risk taking fresh, not keeping it all on, not taking it all off, but recalibrating. Uh, that that makes perfect uh, perfect sense. And and you referenced keeping score. I'm I'm moving some pages around. You referenced keeping score. I was at a sell side firm that had um, you know a thousand plus employees, and I think it was something like six hundred or eight hundred brokers. And I was the, the market strategist, and I used to have brokers come to my office and say to me constantly, you know, I have all these winners, but I can't figure out why my portfolios are down. Uh, well, you know, it's a simple spreadsheet analysis. What do you mean you have all these winners? Well, I have XYZ, and I have ABC, and I have 123. And so I would get a printout of their mm -hmm. entire book, right? and I would say, well, you have these winners, but you're... ABC is your biggest winner and it's your 14th position. You right. know, XYZ is your second biggest winner and it's your 19th position. You have a whole lot of stuff that's flat or maybe up marginally. And look at position number two and number seven and number nine. These are big losers. So yes. I was always astonished that people didn't do a, and again, you know, as a trader, you get a you get a daily P and L, so you know exactly. By the way, when I began, it was SneakerNet. You would download your, it would export the trading program mm -hmm. to the spreadsheet. Right. You would download that to a three point five floppy, and you would have to walk it into the head trader's office. And so you could engage in fraud for three days, but eventually the trade wouldn't clear. It would kick out. Right. I always thought that was like a really deeply flawed methodology, but I think that. I guess the thought process was, hey, we have three days for, for us, right. you know, before the trade bounces, how much uh, havoc can, can anybody anybody wreak? Um, but that keeping score side, I, I'm astonished that more people don't do that. It really is astonishing, and it's astonishing how much can be learned by keeping score and tracking the various elements of your trades and your decision-making. Uh, but one of the patterns I think you're referencing is that many times people will be profitable on a majority of their trades, but the losers go too far. And so the average size of their losing trades becomes much larger than the average size of the winners. And that drags them down. So it seems like they're winning. They have more winning trades and losing trades, but in fact, the P&L is not winning. That conversation is what led me to the world of selective retention, selective perception and 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 just the wait how do you not recall you have this giant flaming hole in your portfolio because their conscious or subconscious has suppressed it and they don't even want to it's too painful to think about I, amazing people only only remember the winners which leads me to an interesting question have you ever worked with any individuals who were not professionals with just uh, investors or or private, uh, I don't want to say private traders, but family offices, things like that, where it's essentially a non-professional managing their own assets. 
How, how have you done much of that? I haven't done much of that, and many times with the non-professional, the ratio of what's a trading problem and what's a psychological problem becomes skewed, and they make many more trading problems precisely uh-huh. because they're not professionals. And so, what they really need, in my view, typically, is mentoring. They need someone to teach them the ropes about financial markets and decision-making rather than a psychological coach. That, that's really interesting. I gave a presentation, uh, at this point, it's now years ago, called Romancing Alpha and Forsaking Beta. Uh, I, I won't mention the organization, but they're notor- they claim to have a huge, wealthy base of clients but they're notoriously cheap about um, about paying outsiders to, to come in and present to their... <laughs> uh, they're like, they dangle, look, here are billions of dollars, come give a speech. <laughs> right, um, right. But was, what was fascinating was the... Beforehand, I did some research about uh, all these people with $30 million minimum assets. What are they investing in and how well have they done? And everybody could tell me, we have this much private equity, we have this much hedge funds, we have this much venture capital... And none of these people could give me an actual, forget audited, how have you done relative to your benchmark? Right. Not a single person can answer that question. Yeah. So that's where, where the phrase romancing alpha forsaking beta came from. If you are so busy chasing outperformance, but you have no idea what your actual benchmark is. That's right. It's astonishing. And to me, that's an individual error. I can't imagine any institution could tolerate that sort of that's, basic flaw uh, for very long and stay in business. That's true. And, and as you know, in the professional world of finance, we look at risk-adjusted returns. Right. How much are you making per unit of risk that you're taking? And it says something about professionalism when someone can't- Can't answer that question. Can't answer the question. Right. If, if, if you are unaware of- Forget risk-adjusted returns. If you're unaware of your relative performance, that's right. What are you doing? And and that's before you get into and what are you paying in fees for this relative performance or underperformance? Right. It, right. It's really um, it's really fascinating. So do you you reference mentoring? That's one of the standard questions um, we talk talk about. What? Why don't we jump right into that? Did you have any early mentors? either on the trading side or on the psychology side? Well, definitely on the psychology side in graduate school. Give us uh, some names. uh, One of the uh, clinical supervisors I Mm -hmm. worked with, uh, who has since passed on, uh, was Dr. Thomas Riley. Mm -hmm. And he taught an approach that was not common at the time, but has become more so recently, that looks at how the different approaches to psychology and psychotherapy are doing things in common rather than being different from each other. Mm-hmm. You know, on the surface, uh, what a Freudian does and what a behaviorist does, quite different. But in fact, he was looking at the common elements and helping mentor graduate students by making the most of the common effective ingredients of psychology. Wait, you're, and, you're and, telling me there's still Freudians? There still are Freudians, okay. absolutely. I, I, I was unaware. That, that, <laughs> that's right. They, there definitely are. And uh, that was a big influence on me. So in other words, find what, what 
the common ground is that works regardless of the ideological silo it may have come from? Yes. So, for instance, a common effective ingredient across different approaches to therapy would be the quality of the helping relationship. Define that. What what is the helping relationship? The helping relationship is, as a psychologist, your relationship with the client and how you engage them, how you interact with them. And whether you're using a behavioral approach or a cognitive approach or a psychoanalytic approach, the quality of that relationship ends up being the best predictor of outcome. And, And so by focusing on those common ingredients, we can become more effective whether we're using approach A, approach B, approach C. So that was a big influence on me in graduate school in psychology in terms of markets and trading. Uh, A big influence on me uh, was around the year 2000 when I began interacting with the um, uh, fund manager, Victor Niederhofer. Oh, sure. And uh, education of a speculator. There you go. Yes. And he really introduced me to a more quantitative and scientific approach to markets. Uh And it was as a result of interacting with him that I began conducting my own studies and supplementing the discretionary decision-making that I had done with more quantitative information. So what's fascinating about him is he's a guy who, who amasses a fortune and then blows up Every cycle, like regularly. (laughs) I don't know how he manages to do it. Um, There was a very infamous Malcolm Gladwell column in The New Yorker that he was the, I think, uh, I'm sure I'm misremembering this, but he is the, um, the foil on the other side of the trade from Nassim Taleb. If, if, right. if, uh, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I do recall something of the sort, yes. So two totally different styles. One is taking very little risk other than the insurance premium for the outsized yeah. black swan performance, and the other is capturing the rent and hoping the house doesn't burn down. Right. Um, so when one's losing, the other's... W- they very much are mirror images of each other's um, trades, or at least way back when it, they it, were. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and it's a shame that uh, he's become known for those blow-ups. But be- he's been be- wildly successful. I mean, well, it, he's it, a squash champion. I believe he was a chess prodigy. It, I, I may it, be he, mis- he has multiple talents. He's a renaissance sort of guy, isn't he? Well, Need offer. Yes, uh, yes. And, and I was just going to mention that, that one of the things I learned from him was that you can learn a lot about markets by studying areas Outside. that have nothing to do with markets. Absolutely. So he would look at ecology. He would look at uh, you know the the world politically, and he would be able to derive patterns and of human behavior that he could apply to markets, and and so it broadened my thinking in many ways. Huh. That that makes perfect sense. Um, is he still trading? Is he still active these days? I believe his own capital. I'm not familiar with what he's doing commercially. Um, I, I, I think you're right from, from what I've heard through the grapevine, but I've always been fascinated by him. I think he's a, a, one of these guys that are just so multifaceted. I, I find that intriguing. Yes. Um, all right, so we, we discussed your psychology and trading uh, mentors. What investors influenced your approach to trading and what investors have impacted the way you look at the world psychologically? 
Probably the greatest impact on my practice has not been from an investor. It's been from philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, early in my college career, I read the novel, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Mm -hmm. And what struck me about the novel was the portrayal of a character as an ideal mm -hmm. who was doing something unique and special with integrity and making the most of who he was. And my immediate thought when I read that novel was, what if psychology could help people not just deal with mental illnesses and problems, but what if psychology could help people become what they're capable of becoming? And that influence ended up steering my work with medical students and residents when I did counseling mm -hmm. with them, and then subsequently with traders and portfolio managers. The, the Fountainhead. Well, yes, and, and the Not philosophy. Atlas Shrugged is why I ask, because that's the one that well, comes up so frequently, well, and the I always Fountainhead go. Was, yeah, The Fountainhead was the first book of hers I read, and I did read Atlas Shrugged and others. But what really inspired me was the portrayal of an ideal. And... I sometimes refer to my work now as therapy for the mentally well, <laughs> that I'm trying to help Makes sense. Help normal people, people like you, like me, who may not have diagnosable mental disorders, but who are capable of becoming much more than they are. Huh. And so that was a major influence uh, on me. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I read Ayn Rand backwards. I started with Atlas Shrugged. Right. Hated it. Mm -hmm. It's like a 97-page speech in the middle. That's right. That's right. Long and tedious <laughs> and pedantic. And uh, I should have, in hindsight, if I could go back in time, I would have started with Fountainhead and maybe I'd have a different perspective. Uh, my, most of my criticism of her is, is from Atlas Shrugged. And I know people love that book. I just yeah. like, oh, my God, this is... War and Peace, only not as interesting. <laughs> right. But, uh, but you know, I, I respect people who have, have a totally different take on it, and maybe uh, uh, maybe maybe I have to revisit it when I have time for an 11... I believe it was like 1,100 pages, if, if memory serves. It, it's a huge book, and one of the takeaways, the positive takeaways for me about that book is outlining the philosophy in terms of the importance of respecting objective reality. Uh, objectivity, self-reliance. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I certainly recall there's a lot of posit positive, yes. don't wait for the government to rescue you, don't wait for the community to save you. There were a lot of things in there that certainly are applicable to traders. Hey, if right. you're waiting for a bailout, unless you're you know, Citibank, it, it sure. ain't coming. Mm -hmm. so, so that was certainly uh, an interesting thing. Since, since we, um, any other investors we want to talk about as, as being influences or do we want to jump right into the book segment of a uh, book portion of our... Well, well, I'll mention one of the investors. Uh, I uh, have worked for a number of years at uh, uh, Tudor, sure. an investment fund. Paul Tudor Jones, Paul a Tudor legendary Jones, uh, uh, trader. Absolutely. Yes, who founded the firm. 
Famous for calling the 87 crash yes, and, and that's trading. Right. That's right. There's a video somewhere out there of him. Actually, I don't recall if it was the day of Black Monday. That's right. But it, uh, it, it, it was basically him. All right, this has gone far enough. Let's start buying him here. And right. I think people look at him like he has two heads with that. But really, really interesting guy, really interesting and, background. And, and he certainly has evolved over that time period, but has been an inspiration for many traders. But one of the things he said to me early on during my time at Tudor that really resonated was, if it's not in your calendar, it's not part of your process. Meaning, expand meaning, on that. Meaning that if something truly is part of your process and what you do, then it has a place in your calendar, in your life. In your daily schedule. Yes, that our processes, when they're developed to the fullest, really are positive habit patterns. Mm -hmm. There are things we do repeatedly in the same way with fidelity. And so by putting something in a calendar, you're cementing it as part of your process. And, and that resonated with me because many times people have good intentions, they set a goal, they write in their journal. New Year's resolutions. Yes, but they never get down to the specifics of implementing it on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and so that was a piece of advice and a perspective that I found very helpful in working with traders. So, so let's talk about books a little bit. You mentioned Ayn Rand's Fountainhead as a book that positively influenced you. What other books do you enjoy, be them fiction, nonfiction, market-related, or, or anything else? Well, certainly, like many traders, uh, I've uh, found uh, influence and inspiration from uh, Jack Schwager's Market Wizards books. First, first book I was ever given as a trader, and yeah. I reread <clears throat> it every five years. Yeah. Love it. Love it. And what it really cemented for me was that there was no one formula for success. Mm -hmm. That many of these very successful traders were successful because they had unique, distinctive skills. And they found a way to implement those skills in financial markets. And so that led me to a, a strengths-based approach where I try to figure out what are the trader's greatest strengths mm. and how can they make the greatest use of those strengths in the trading they're doing? Interesting. What What else? Tell me what else you've really enjoyed reading. Uh, books in general in the, in the field of what's called positive psychology. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the first researcher, the first writer uh, who started all that was Abraham Maslow. Uh-huh. Who studied, Hierarchy of needs. Uh, yes. Sure. Who studied what, uh, what he called self-actualization. Mm -hmm. But in recent, uh, I'd say in the last 10, 15 years particularly, there's been an emphasis on studying mental health, on studying the positive aspects of human behavior and performance, uh -huh. understanding strengths, and there have been some very thought-provoking pieces of research that have been conducted under this rubric of positive uh, psychology. Martin Seligman is a key researcher. Know the name. What, what's a key the, uh... researcher in that area uh, who has looked at strengths 
and how those impact physical health, mm -hmm. how those impact emotional well-being. Uh, so those are some of the uh, directions that I've found uh, from recent reading. Did, has Seligman put out a book, or is it mostly? He has a academic? number of them. Yes, he, what, yes, yes. Give us the one that you think people might find accessible. Um, I would say there is probably the most accessible is there's a website on positive psychology. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you Google positive psychology, you'll find it. And it summarizes his works uh, in addition to the works of other psychology researchers. Uh -huh. And that's a great way of finding an introduction uh, to the field. Any other books you want to mention before we move on to the to the next few questions? No, I think I'm ready for the next question. All right. Um, so since you've joined the industry as a trading coach, what what's changed? What do you think are the most significant changes um, since you became a, a, a coach? One of the biggest changes, uh, particularly in the hedge fund world, has been altered risk tolerance among investors in the post-2008 world. Meaning decreased risk tolerance. Much decreased risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. you know, if you read the Market Wizards books, it was not unusual for people to have double-digit losses and then right. they would have double-digit and triple-digit returns. No one, no one, no one talks in those terms anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, the focus is much more on risk-adjusted returns than absolute returns. And if someone is risking only a few percent and can make five to 10%, they're happy with that, huh. particularly in a zero interest rate world. So the demands of investors have changed and that has altered the risk mandates mm -hmm. for traders. And that has affected coaching because it's no longer about making as much as you can. It's as much as, as you were saying before, it's as much about the defense as the offense. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's, really, uh, that's really quite interesting. I, I have a friend, a different friend from the one who was, you know, uh, up 100%, um, who every time he gets a major client redemption or a series of inquiries and questions and, you know, like a lot of hedge funds, they're gated. Mm -hmm. He says, typically when a position I've had on that has been making money or has been losing money um, but is still sound – when there's a, like a crescendo of redemption, he says, back, back to the response from other people, he goes, invariably, that's the nadir of the trade and it's all upside from there. And right. he goes, I've had redemptions every few years. I'll hit a streak like this and I'll send money back. And I, so my answer is always, question to him is always, well, do you let them know, hey, by the way, you missed an extra. Nope, once they redeem, they're gone. And right. there's no reason for me to rub um you know, add insult to injury. Not only did they not make money, but they missed the upside. So that's right. That, that, that's pretty fascinating. Um, so we talked about the, the changes, the risk-adjusted changes. Uh, what do you see as the next shifts that are coming along? I think the next shifts are going to be uh, a continuation of what we've seen recently in uh, longer-term investing. Mm-hmm investing through um, maximizing returns from different factors mm -hmm. as opposed to 
active timing of markets. So you're talking more factor investing in smart beta than uh, more asset management mm -hmm. as opposed to the active trading. I think there will always be a niche for active traders and for people uh, who are talented at active trading. But uh, as you alluded earlier, it's difficult to justify the fees uh -huh. when the performance is not exceeding the average performance of the more passive asset management approaches. So, so you keep referencing the algorithmic side of it and, and software is eating the world. Uh, are, are traders an endangered species? Is, are we going to ever get to a point where it's just computers trading or, or is there always going to be a slot for, for humans exercising judgment to try and figure out a way to to capture some profit. Yes, and I think already we've seen, particularly with respect to market making, that the lion's share of that business has gone to the machines. Mm -hmm. uh, they're simply able to process more information qu more quickly uh, than human participants. Now, as we widen the time frame and we go from higher frequency trading to investment, then I believe there will continue to be a role for human judgment. Mm -hmm. Algorithmic trading at the root of it is science. It is studying the historical patterns in financial markets that recur and profiting when those occur in, in the present. At certain junctures, the future becomes unlike what it's been in the past. Right. And the algorithms, by definition, only know the past and the patterns from the past. Right. I think there is a role for human judgment in determining when a unique future is occurring, uh, but uh, I, I do believe that's becoming a more specialized world. And, and the issue is machine learning. Theoretically, these machines can identify when, when the market structure or the conditions change. That's right. What I'm finding is that many of the most successful discretionary uh, portfolio managers are ones that have quantitative aspects uh -huh. to what they do. So it's not all machine and it's not all subjective judgment. It's using the machine for enhanced information and then making better decisions based on the information provided by the machine. My analogy for that would be a, a fighter pilot who has all sorts of computerized equipment on board and is able to gauge very quickly weather conditions and where the enemy is located. But at the end of the day, it's the pilot who ends up making a decision about mm -hmm. attacking, not attacking. So what do you do to keep mentally fit as a trader and as a psychology, what do you do outside of the office for relaxation? How do you, you referenced earlier the balance that's needed. How do you personally make sure that uh, you, you don't become overly um, either burnt out or overexposed to any one aspect of your job? Well, and to get back to what I was mentioning earlier in terms of the psychological research on positive emotional experience, mm -hmm. uh, those four areas of positive experience, happiness, doing things that you have fun with, mm -hmm. satisfaction, doing things that are deeply meaningful to you, energy, doing things that are stimulating, 
maybe intellectually, maybe physically, and affection, doing things that bring you closer to the people that matter. Give me those four again. Happiness, Happiness, satisfaction, satisfaction, energy, energy, and affection. And those are the four big drivers of positive emotional experience. And so I want to be firing on all those cylinders every week out of the year. And I want the traders I work with to be firing on those cylinders, to be doing some activities that bring them happiness, to be doing some activities that bring them fulfillment, to do some energizing activities, to do some activities that bring them closer to people that they want to be close to. And that keeps people fresh. It keeps them alive and energized, even when the profits aren't coming. I'm going to go off script from my my usual 10 favorite questions to to bring something up. The past year, I've read a million articles about meditation and traders, meditation yes. on Wall Street. Uh, how much of that is hype and how much of that is is real? Do you do you see a lot of traders meditating? Yes, uh, you do. Yes, and, uh, you, and you find it valuable. Yeah, I, I've seen it uh, be very helpful to traders, and, and the way in which it's helpful is that it it induces a state of calm focus. Mm-hmm. So it's a way of gaining self control. And in a meditative state, people are able, for instance, to mentally rehearse different what-if scenarios Mm -hmm. to prepare for the day ahead. When you've meditated day after day, week after week, you become very good at those skills. Mm -hmm. And so during the trading day, you can take some deep breaths, get yourself very centered, very focused, and it helps with making more dispassionate decisions. I referenced the jungle combat instructor I worked with. There was another former army ranger I worked with. And one of the things I found fascinating, because I was always curious, hey, tell us about some missions, tell us what. I was always fascinated about the prep work they did. Yeah. And one of the things that I learned from them was it wasn't just um, what's plan B, what's plan C, what's plan D. There, were, there was always that. It was the process of envisioning your emotional response to when things go wrong. Yes. What happens when we, we go in through the door A, but the egress is blocked? Not just what is my plan B to get out, but how am I going to feel about that? If you can anticipate your emotional response, you can manage it when it actually comes. I thought Absolutely. that was fascinating. And, and yes. the meditation is... Sounds somewhat uh, similar to that. It's a tool for mindfulness to be more self-aware. And so it can be very helpful for traders in that respect. Interesting. And and now we're down to our two favorite questions. So if, if some millennial came to you and said, I'm interested in a career as a trading coach or as a psychologist, what sort of advice would you would you give them? Well, uh, if they were interested in working as a performance coach, whether it's with traders or other performance professionals, I would encourage them to get the best grounding in psychology possible Mm -hmm. and start with that and then apply to the populations of interest. And and I would encourage them in particular to, to develop a grounding in that positive psychology that I referenced earlier and the research therein, as well as traditional approaches to psychology. And, and our final question, um, what is it, I'm going to say that again, and our final question, 
What is it that you know about performance coaching today you wish you knew when you began all those years ago? Probably the greatest lesson that I've learned is that performance is every bit as much a function of maximizing your strengths as addressing your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And there certainly is a role for correcting our weaknesses, for identifying what we do wrong and, and learning from that. But at the end of the day, what makes people distinctive are their strengths, what they do superlatively well. And it's surprising how people are often unaware of their greatest strengths. And they don't tap those regularly in their personal lives or in their decision-making in financial markets. And so by focusing on who this person is and what they're really good at, it allows me to help them leverage those talents in their financial decision-making. Brett, this has been really quite fascinating. I know it's a subject that people don't get to hear about a lot, and I suspect people are really going to enjoy listening to this. And, I appreciate and for, it. For those, of you, for those of you who are still with us here at the end, um, be sure and check out the rest of the other 100-plus podcasts we've done over the past few years. Look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you'll see all the rest of the conversations we've had. Uh, be sure and check out Dr. Steenbarger's blog at traderfeed.blogspot.com. Is That's that right? That's correct. Um, I would be remiss if I did not thank Michael Batnick, our head of research, uh, Taylor Riggs, our booker, and Charlie Vollmer, our producer. Be We love your, I forgot to say this during the broadcast portion, so I'll, I'll say it now. We love your comments, feedback, and email. Be sure and write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.